essentially every single song, every greatest hit you can think of is the same four chords over and over again. Same four chords. I don't buy it. Uh, trust me, name any song and it's only four chords. Prove it. Life is brilliant, my love is pure, I saw an angel, of that I'm sure, and I won't hesitate no more, no more, it cannot wait, I'm yours, can you feel the love tonight, and she will. around you say baby I love you and I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more take on me take me on and I'll be gone in a day or two and I'll Great work, Nathan, and he says he's going to have 20 more for next week, so we'll see if that happens. Um, hey, it is so good uh, to be with all of you today. My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the ministers here, uh, and it's a good day. Uh, we're kicking off a new series because Nathan says every greatest hit can be played with the same four chords, and while it's probably not just four chords, one of the things that we've just kind of been thinking about is in our history, as we're celebrating 150 years, is just the consistency of what we've been preaching for the last 150 years. And we thought, uh, what a cooler way to kind of demonstrate that, just like Nathan proved that you can sing all the hits with four chords, uh, but to pull back some of those old sermons and let us hear them all over again. And so that's what we're doing in this series. We're going to preach two sermons from a guy who was a preacher here in the 1920s, two preachers, two sermons from a guy who was in the 1950s, and uh, one sermon from a guy who was here in the 1990s. Uh, today's sermon is by William Sweeney, uh, who every picture I've found of William Sweeney, he was wearing a gray suit and a black tie. So that's what this is. Those of you you were wondering, what is he doing wearing a suit? Is he like performing a wedding right after church today? That's what's going on. I don't even own a black tie. This is the closest I could get. This is my Will Sweeney costume. 
Uh, Will Sweeney was a great preacher here from 1920 to 1928, went on to preach in a half dozen other churches as well. Um, one of our church members, Gene Wigington, met him. Uh, when Gene was a young preacher in his 20s, he met um, Will Sweeney, was, he was an old preacher, and actually got to preach for him. Uh, he, he told me one story that I thought was worth passing on. Uh, Will Sweeney knew how to be brief when it was needed. Uh, he was speaking at a convention one time, and the music had run over, and the announcements had run over, and the specials had run over, and by the time he stood up to preach, he was supposed to have 40 minutes but in fact, they were already five minutes over the whole time they had the room reserved. And so they were in trouble. So he still went up, and according to uh, Gene Wigginton, he went up and said, um, my topic for tonight is the plea of Christianity still relevant. My message for tonight, yes. And he left the stage. So that's the story as Gene Wigginton told it there to me. Um, we know a little bit about how Will Sweeney preached. Um, uh, boxes and boxes of his papers are over at Milligan's Archives. And I, I spent a couple, uh, a couple days over there with my research assistants, my parents, Pat and Lee Magnus. And we searched through these boxes. What do we know about his preaching? He almost never preached a sermon series. We like sermon series. We'll do like six in a row kind of on a connected theme. He almost never did that. He uh, didn't follow a lectionary, like an assigned list of texts, like some preachers do. He almost never preached straight through a book of the Bible. We looked through about 500 sermons. We only found one example where he preached through one of Paul's letters, kind of in a row. He almost never did that. Uh, basically, he would just pick a text or a theme that he thought was relevant for his church or relevant for the, the moment, and he would kind of pick it week by week, and he would preach on that. We know a little bit about how he prepared his sermons. He would study the text, and then he would write an outline of the things he might want to say. And then he carried a notebook with him. And he would, in that notebook, write out longhand the paragraphs that went with each one of those points in the outline. And then the night before he preached, he would write a brand new outline for how he wanted to say it that day. Often similar to the original outline, but with little subtle differences. And then he would come up and he would just bring that outline with him uh, because he had already kind of learned all the paragraphs that went with each outline point. Uh, how have we reconstructed the sermon? Well, we've picked a sermon today that was preached 100 years ago, January 27th, 1927. In, I'm sorry, January 27th, 1921 in this church. Um, and uh, we'll be following the outline that he used that day. We picked one for which we also have most of his long-form notes. So we know what he would have said under almost all the points of the outline. There are a couple things, uh, like some of the transition sections, that we've had to reconstruct from other of his sermons where we have a full manuscript, because we don't have a full manuscript uh, for this one. And in a very few cases, uh, we have changed some of his words when the word that was used in 1921 just isn't one we would know today. And so I've swapped it out with a word that would be clearer to us today. And I've done my best to even try to preach it uh, as Will Sweeney's preaching was described. But if every once in a while it sounds like Ethan, you'll have to forgive me uh, for that. At that time, uh, the last thing that would have happened in the service before Will Sweeney began his sermon was the scripture for the sermon would have been read, probably by somebody else in the worship service. So I'll do that next. I'm actually going to read it in two translations. I'll read it in the King James Version, which is what Will Sweeney preached from. 
But since most of us aren't very used to that, I will also then immediately after that read it in a more modern translation just to make sure we all understand the text. But then after I read the text, we're just going to jump in to Will Sweeney's sermon, and I'll do my best to interrupt him as little as possible. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The same text from a more modern translation, Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, lawbreakers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And after the reading was finished, he would have come up to the pulpit and begun with prayer. So let's pray. Lord Christ, we are honored to be gathered in your presence to worship you today. May we be blessed by our time in worship and word today. Sanctify our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Today we have before us a scripture of immense value and importance. Value to the one who is a Christian and hopes to follow Jesus rightly. And value to the one who is not yet a Christian who is looking in on Christ and Christianity from the outside and considering following Jesus. It is a parable of Jesus, a teaching story told to those who trusted in their own goodness. And it is meant to teach them and us how to approach God humbly and to warn us against the spirit of self-satisfaction. So, open your Bibles up today to Luke 18, or I'll add, find it on your iPhone, and let us learn from Christ today. And as you do, I wonder, how do you read this parable? 
Because as I consider this parable and how it is read by many, it seems true to me that of a hundred people who read this parable, 99 unhesitatingly believe that the publican's spirit of humility is also theirs. But I also believe it is equally true that in fact, there is more of a spirit of self-exaltation and the Pharisee's spirit of self-satisfaction in each one of these 99 than they care to admit. So we need to understand these spirits, how they are presented in the parable and how they are present in our lives. First, let us consider the Pharisee's spirit of self-satisfaction. What can we say about such a spirit? Well, we can speak of the wrong of it, for we never have any right to be satisfied with less than that which is the best. A person should be satisfied with what cannot be made better, and they should be dissatisfied with anything that can be improved. This means that we should find ourselves satisfied with the circumstances and surroundings of our life that lie beyond our control. For these we cannot make better. And we should be dissatisfied with our own attainment. For this can always be improved. But most of us reverse the rule. We are satisfied with our attainments and our efforts. And we are dissatisfied with those circumstances around us about which we can have no effect. We are dissatisfied by the circumstances into which God places us, but we are satisfied by our attainments, our financial attainment, our physical condition, our reputation, even our assumed spiritual attainment. This is exactly the reverse of what should be the case. Having spoken of the wrong of this spirit, we can also speak of the danger of the spirit of self-satisfaction. For the spirit of self-satisfaction removes the gratitude that should mark our worship. Of course, our Pharisee says the words, I thank you, but look there. There is no real gratitude there for what God has done. There is little gratitude in his heart, for he considered himself a self-made man, and therefore, no doubt, was glad to rid himself of the responsibility of coming to worship with gratitude toward God. We can see the danger of the spirit of self-satisfaction when we recognize that it stops moral progress. The text says, he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. Many modern preachers would have considered a discourse on the evils of extortion or law-breaking or adultery a proper one for such an audience. But Jesus knows that to focus on the sins of others and the sins of the world cuts us off from moral progress and begins the process of moral degeneration. Now, one of the marks of Will Sweeney's preaching that drives me crazy, it's the only thing about his preaching that drives me crazy, is he never, ever repeats himself. But that sentence was amazing, so I'm going to repeat it. Jesus knows 
that to focus on the sins of others and the sins of the world cuts us off from our own moral progress and actually starts the process of our moral degeneration. Finally, we can speak of the danger of this spirit of self-satisfaction when we recognize that it disconnects us from God and from our faith in God. The Pharisee had risen to such a point of self-righteousness that he didn't need God. He trusted in himself, the Bible says. He thought that he had earned independence and was ready to ask for God's reward on his own merit. He's like a sick man who goes to the doctor and speaks the whole time of his good limbs and his sound organs and says nothing of his weakness or his terminal diagnosis. Having recognized the danger of this spirit, we must also sadly speak of the fact of it. The fact that the spirit of self-satisfaction is a spirit alive in our churches today. We see this when we see the frivolous treatment of the gospel. And we forget that each one of us is desperately dependent on the gospel for our salvation. And we become content in our spiritual growth, assuming that we have arrived where God seeks to bring us. We see the fact of this spirit of self-satisfaction when we see the frivolous treatment of our worship, making it the last priority in our schedules rather than the first. We see the spirit of self-satisfaction in our churches when we lose the diligence for the study of God's word. Paul writes in the book of Colossians, We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But many of us are not increasing in the knowledge of God because a spirit of self-satisfaction has taken root in us. Finally, we see the fact of the presence of this spirit of self-satisfaction in us when we are indifferent to the lost state of sinners in our world. Like the very ones Jesus spoke to, we are trusting in our own righteousness and think not of the state of others. We also can speak of the reasons for this spirit of self-satisfaction. The reasons it existed in the life of the Pharisee and the reasons it exists in us today. It begins when we compare ourselves with others. The Pharisee prays, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. But let's be clear. The faults of others are not virtues to us. In a baseball game, the errors of the other team don't win the game. We must score some runs. Likewise, the faults that others commit do not accrue themselves as virtues unto any man. Secondly, we see in the reason for the spirit of self-satisfaction in our mistaken value of ceremonial observances. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. 
In the same way a man says today, I'm a part of a Sunday school class, or my name is on the roll of a church, or I give when the almsman comes to my door. Yet these ceremonial observances are not how righteousness is accrued to those who are faithful to God. We also see the spirit of self-satisfaction arise when we overestimate the importance of negative goodness. We think to ourselves that God is most pleased by what we do not do. The Pharisee says, I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. Many today, it seems, are most proud about what they are not. They are proud of the sins they do not commit, or the group of sinners to which they do not belong, or the specific sinner whose base nature somehow confers upon the Pharisee his virtue. But Christ does not call us primarily to negative virtue, but to the positive expression of the fruit of the Spirit. As Paul writes, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. These are the marks of Christian virtue, not those things we do not do. This overestimation of negative goodness is compounded by the habit we have of making virtues out of what is merely necessity. We think that we are virtuous for the sins we avoid simply because our upbringing or our station in life makes them nearly unthinkable. Many people, it seems to me, have almost no virtue except, that though, except those that arrive from necessity or nurture. Oh yes, they are not a murderer, but that's only because they're chicken-hearted. They are not drunkards, but that's only because they were raised by teetotalers and consequently can't stand the smell of liquor. They are not promiscuous, but that's only because they feel no such temptation or they have no such opportunity. You see, the mere fact that we are inclined to pride over our negative goodness for which we can take no credit, and for which we have exerted no labor should be a warning to us that all of us could have easily come to worship today like a Pharisee, filled with a spirit of self-satisfaction. Finally, we know that one of the reasons for the spirit of self-satisfaction is that we like to take comfort ourselves for our sin by focusing our attention on the sins of others. Samuel Butler, in his famous poem from the late 1600s, by the way, one of the ways you can know this is Will Sweeney's sermon and not mine, is that I'm quoting poets from the late 1600s, okay? That is not something Ethan does. Okay, all right. Samuel Butler, in his famous poem from the late 1600s that I believe is pronounced Hudibra, perhaps, condemns just this sort of faith when he writes, they make up for the sins that they're inclined to by damning those they have no mind to. Consequently, there is today more hope 
for many in our penitentiaries and jails who have there developed a spirit of humility than for anyone of the many who have encased themselves, as it were, in the armor of self-satisfaction. This is what we can say about the spirit of self-satisfaction. We can speak of the wrong of it and the danger of it. The fact of its existence today and some of the reasons that we are so easily taken up by this spirit. But what can we say about the publican and his spirit of humility? Well, before we say anything, we must first marvel that he even went to worship that day, despite the presence of the Pharisee. How brave he must be, and how eager to meet God he must be, that he would come to worship undeterred by the fact that someone was there who looked down upon him. That day he thought more of God's mercy than he did of the Pharisees' scorn. And we are so glad that he overcame the dread of the Pharisees' scorn, but we must hope that no such thing should be true in our church. On the contrary, we expect of our gatherings that they be a place most welcoming to the sinner, the one who is far from God in life or faith or in purity. And you may ask, how can the publican gather the courage to enter the gathering of worship and face the scorn of the Pharisee? He does this because the power of the spirit of humility is the power to bring us close to God. For in the same way that the Pharisee is deceived by a spirit of self-satisfaction, the publican finds wisdom and mercy because he is led by the spirit of humility. And a spirit of humility always leads us toward God just as surely as a spirit of self-satisfaction always leads us away. And what can we say about this spirit of humility? Firstly, we can recognize that a spirit of humility is always marked by a dissatisfaction with the self. We see this in the way the publican approaches. He stands far off. He will not even look up into heaven. He smote upon his breast. We see this in the spirit of the Apostle Paul who says, I am the worst of sinners. The one who possesses a spirit of humility will always have a wise dissatisfaction with themselves. We also see the spirit of humility is marked by a recognition of guilt. He comes before God and names himself a sinner. A spirit of humility brings the knowledge that we have fallen short of God's standards. You see, a self-satisfied man looks upon God's standards and uses those standards to judge others. But a man with a spirit of humility sees God's standards and knows his own guilt. Finally, we can observe that a spirit of humility 
makes the, the publican recognize his need of mercy. That is his only prayer. God, be merciful to me. He does not pray for justice, for by that he would be condemned. So he prays for mercy. The one with the spirit of humility looks upon the whole world and hopes for mercy. Hopes that none would get their just deserts. This is the mark of the spirit of humility. A dissatisfaction with the self, a recognition of guilt, and an awareness of a man's need for mercy. And now, having understood these two spirits, we can turn to the most important observation, the consequences of these two very different spirits. We see this in verse 14. Turn again to your text. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The one with the spirit of humility is justified. The one without is not. Justification is the declaration of innocence of one who was guilty. It is the reversal of judgments that should be levied against us because of the mercy of God expressed through Jesus Christ. The spirit of humility draws us to God because we want God's mercy instead of God's judgment. The spirit of self-satisfaction, however, speaks the lie that we somehow could stand under God's judgment on our own. And so it leads us away from God's mercy. And when we falsely believe that we could stand under God's judgment on our own, we begin to stand in judgment of others. This is the final consequence for the self-satisfied man. Standing in judgment of others and standing under God's judgment because they have rejected mercy. The humble man, instead, is justified. Seeking and finding God's mercy instead of God's judgment and therefore extending God's mercy to others. And for this man, in Jesus' parable, mercy was simply sought. He prayed to God and he went back to his house justified. And today... If you find that you have been living a self-satisfied life, impressed with your own attainment, and only now you are recognizing that you are under God's judgment, and if you in this present moment is building a spirit of humility, you too must seek God's mercy. And we seek God's mercy according to the way God teaches. That too is fitting for a spirit of humility to seek mercy the way we are taught to seek mercy. And it begins just as it began for this man, with a prayer to God for mercy. But Jesus teaches that that prayer is made complete in baptism. We obey Jesus in baptism. We die to ourselves and escape the judgment that is due us. And we rise to life in Christ 
and the mercy that flows from him. Those of you who have been living a spirit of self-satisfaction may right now decide you want to respond to God with a spirit of humility. Because this text ends the same way our time together will end. Each man returned to his house, just as we will soon return to ours. The one who arrived self-satisfied returned to his house unjustified. The one who arrived with humility returned to his house justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be abased, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you arrived here humbled today, you can be justified. Pray to God for mercy. Come and be baptized if you have not. If you arrive today self-satisfied, you can repent. Recognize that you cannot stand under God's judgment by your attainments, and you're in no position to judge others. You can repent and receive the spirit of humility that the publican shows us, and you too can return to your house justified. If you have been baptized, as we conclude our, this time, you could express this spirit of humility by just sharing to God the publican's prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you have not been baptized, then follow the spirit of humility by seeking God's mercy in the way Jesus teaches. Come to Christ for baptism. I'll break for the last time from Will Sweeney's sermon. If that's you, there are lots of ways you can do that. In Will Sweeney's day, he would have invited you to the front of the service while we sang a song. I, too, will do that in about 30 seconds. But you also could meet me after the service. If you're worshiping with us online, click the prayer box, and somebody would love to pray with you and help you get started following Jesus. You could come this afternoon to our First Things First class where we talk more about having Jesus, or you could stop by the connection kiosk. We've got some team there who would love to tell you about the church and tell you about what it would look like for you to seek God's mercy humbly in your life. But I'll also offer you the same invitation Will Sweeney did. In just a moment, I'll pray and we'll sing a song. And if you want to begin the steps toward receiving the mercy of God, to just humbly approach God, knowing that you need God's mercy, we won't sing very long, so don't take your time. Just come down here and meet me. And let's pray together and begin that journey. You could be baptized today if that's what you need. Let me pray for us. God, break down the spirit of self-satisfaction that is in our hearts and replace it with a spirit of humility that calls us to seek your mercy. Confront the lie that we believe that somehow we have attained sufficient Status that we can approach your throne on our own, apart from the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And give the humble heart hope that when they approach you for mercy, it will be granted. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand now as we sing our prayer for God's mercy. And if you want to meet me today, you can come down front and meet me.
Amen. That is a good word, and I am grateful to Brother Sweeney for keeping track of his notes so we could hear it again uh, 106 years and six months later, almost to the day, January 27, 1921. Somebody asked me, that was, somebody said, that's a really great sermon. What if we like his preaching better than yours? Uh, <laughs> no worries. Uh, Milligan's Archives has over a thousand of his sermons archived. I could preach the next 20 years from Will Sweeney's sermon, so just let me know. That'll be fine. But it is a good word, and it's just as true today as it was 100 years ago. Um, the spirit of self-satisfaction is easily come by, and it drives us away from God. The spirit of humility is hard won, but it draws us right to our Father. And his mercy is still here from you. If you need to, if you need to get real with that, uh, you come talk to me. Uh, you get connected. Everybody's got a next step. I picked this sermon because we were going through just reading sermon, sermon, sermon. I read this one, and I just stopped. And I just had to worship God and re reset my heart and search my own heart for a spirit of self-satisfaction. I hope it had the same uh, fruit in your life. Uh, those of you worshiping online here, if you came ready to give today, don't forget to do that. Uh, that's what's kept us going for 150 years, preaching the gospel like Will Sweeney did. Uh, if you do have, need help taking a next step, getting connected with the group, joining the church, stop by the connection kiosk or type it in the chat. Somebody will connect with you. Right now, I just want to pray you, and we're all going to go back to our house, just like they did in the parable, just like they did 100 years ago. And I hope you'll go home justified because you have really approached God with a spirit of humility today. Let's pray. God, send us home. Send us home with broken hearts but restored lives. God, be merciful to us, for we are sinners. This is our departing prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you, church. Have a great week.